Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's about that time again. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, your creator and host, and with me this week, as per usual, Matthew. I'm here. You are there. It's a gorgeous day. Isn't it, it? it is beautiful today. It's nice so and nice. sunny. I, I think that we're going to see the cherry blossom soon. Spring is springing. Yeah. My mom always used to say, spring is sprung, the grass is riz. <laughs> I wonder where the birdies is. (laughs) Nice. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Now toasted. (laughs) Look at you pulling out the Mad Men reference. Yeah. Yeah. I only saw like two of those episodes. Really? Yeah, because I was working in an advertising agency when it came out, and it was just a little bit too, like, work. Yeah, I like that show. After World War II, Canada's economy was on the rise. Work was much easier to come by than it had been during the Depression. Even though he'd been able to secure decent employment, Edwin Alonzo Boyd, a family man and World War veteran with movie star good looks, was bored. He'd had his share of trouble already, and he was feeling the itch again. In the fall of 1949, he robbed his first bank. This kicked off events that would lead to the formation of one of Canada's most infamous criminal gangs of the era. Over just a few years, the Boyd Gang, named for their charismatic de facto leader, Edwin, robbed numerous banks and broke out of one of Canada's toughest prisons not once, but twice. They were seen as folk heroes by some, until public sentiment turned firmly against them after members of the gang, Steve Suchan and Lenny Jackson, murdered Toronto Police Department Sergeant of Detectives Edmund Eddie Tong and severely wounded his partner, Roy Perry. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 207, Bad Apples, Edwin Alonzo Boyd and His Gang. As well as other sources, author Nate Hendley's book, Edwin Alonzo Boyd, Life and Crimes of Canada's Master Bank Robber, filled in the early details of Edwin Boyd's life. 
please check out Nate's book if you want a quick but informative read of the story of Edwin Alonzo Boyd and his escapades. Edwin Alonzo Boyd was born the day after April Fool's Day, April 2, 1914, to Eleanor and Glover Boyd. Tensions were rising in Europe at the time, and only months after Edwin's birth, the Great War broke out. In 1915, Glover enlisted to go overseas and fight. For the duration of the First World War, young Edmund was left with his mom and her eldest son from a previous marriage, a boy named Harold. Life was fairly peaceful while Glover, a devoutly religious man and strict disciplinarian, was away. But when the armistice was signed and peace declared in Europe, the war in the form of Glover came home to Toronto. Life in the Boyd home was much tougher for five-year-old Edwin after Glover's return. The freedom Edwin had enjoyed with his mom was gone, and he resented Glover's heavy hand. Over the next few years, the Boyds had three more kids, two boys, Gordon and Norman, and a daughter, Irene. Glover joined the Toronto Police Department and made a career there. Edwin, for one reason or another, didn't go to school until he was seven. He hated it there, too. Just like at home, there was discipline and even more expectations. Edwin would rather be running around with his young friends outside than spending time with another adult who was telling him to behave. His religious parents also expected Edwin not only to attend church, but to be active there as well. To Edwin, church was yet another place with restrictions and rules impinging on his freedoms. According to the CBC archives, quote, Boyd's upbringing was very religious, but his parents' lessons to young Edwin were rather ineffectual. After attending choir practice, Boyd would break into the homes of his absent relatives to steal their money, end quote. The only grown-up that Edwin seemed to get along with at all was his mom, Eleanor. She was who he ran to after beatings by his dad. But when Eleanor died, Edwin was only 15. The youngster's life spiraled after that. He quit school after the eighth grade and loathed life with Glover and his new girlfriend Minerva, the family's former housekeeper. Edwin left home when he was 18. The Great Depression had begun and Edwin joined the scores of other young men riding the rails from place to place looking for work that was harder and harder to come by. It was during this time, partially out of necessity, that Edwin began to learn the art of the con. He took to it like a duck to water. He was a striking young man, bearing a strong resemblance to the swashbuckling heartthrob actor Errol Flynn, right down to the hair and mustache. Boyd used his good looks to his advantage, conning his way into private homes for food or to get himself out of jams at restaurants where he'd eat a sumptuous meal with not a penny to his name. He'd finish the last bite and when the check arrived, he would smile, saying he couldn't pay, offering to wash dishes to work off the cost of the dinner. Sometimes, though, his antics got him into hot water. Between 1933 and 36, as Edwin traveled around western Canada, he was arrested and jailed several times for vagrancy and begging. The Calgary Albertan newspaper mentioned the arrest and imprisonment of Boyd and one of his pals in an article published on August 12, 1936. Ernest Young and Edwin Boyd, facing charges of obtaining meals from the Ritz Cafe, valued at 70 cents each, were sentenced to three days in prison by Magistrate D.C. Sinclair this week. Both men were released as sentences ran from the day of their arrest, which was August 6th, end quote. It was later on that month when Edwin got himself into the first jam that would earn him some real jail time. From the Edmonton Bulletin on August 31st, 1936, quote, 
found by Constable C.D. Pakaluk, crouched behind a desk in the offices of the Montrose Service Station at 106 Avenue and 100 Street at 1.35 a.m. Monday. Edwin Boyd, a transient of no fixed abode, was taken to the police station on charges of breaking and entering. At headquarters, the accused is alleged to have admitted breaking into the Medico Service Station, 111 Avenue and 101 Street, which also was discovered ransacked. He had but one cent on him when searched. He will appear in court Monday to face the charge, end quote. It turned out that Edwin and his pal had been involved in a string of burglaries around Alberta. From a Canadian press article in the Star Phoenix newspaper published on September 4, 1936, quote, Pair ass prison term. Given wish. Eastern youth guilty of 41 break-in charges will serve three and a half years. Pleading guilty to a total of 41 charges of breaking and entering, a pair of Eastern Canada youth asked in police court here today to be sent to penitentiary so they might take advantage of possible educational and dental facilities available in Dominion Prison. Edwin Boyd, 23, former Toronto accountant, and Ernest Young, 24, St. John, New Brunswick surveyor, admitted guilt on 21 and 20 counts respectively. Magistrate A. H. Gibson complied with their wishes by sentencing them to three and a half years on each charge in Prince Albert's penitentiary. Sentences to run concurrently. The magistrate emphasized, however, he was sending them to prison in the hopes that they would change their view on life rather than with a postgraduate course in mind. End quote. A con must con. Interesting that Boyd, a man who dropped out of school in the eighth grade, would claim that he was an unemployed accountant. Regardless, Boyd did his time and in the summer of 1939 returned to Toronto where he did odd jobs to earn himself enough cash to buy a motorcycle. When World War II broke out in the fall of 1939, Edwin Boyd enlisted in the Canadian Armed Forces, joining the Royal Canadian Regiment 1st Division. His regiment was sent to England in 1940 and they were posted in Rygate, Surrey. It was here that Boyd met his wife, Doreen Mary Frances Thompson. They were married in December 1940, and nine months later, Edwin Alonzo Boyd Jr. was born. The baby died of a cerebral hemorrhage when he was only two days old. Doreen became pregnant again and gave birth to twins in 1943. They would later have a third child. You know, my husband, Grandma's eyes would totally light up when she talked about the handsome Canadian soldiers, as she called them in the UK during World War II. Oh, really? Yeah, I think there's, I think a lot of relationships happened um, between Canadians and Brits at the time. And Well, I mean, how couldn't they have? Yeah, lots of, quote, war brides came over after the war, didn't they? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, my grandmother was a Dutch war bride. Yeah. So, yeah met uh, my birth grandfather during the liberation of Holland. Okay. Yeah. And Rygate is it's kind of like a bedroom community of London now. It's like south and a little bit west. Mm-hmm. And it, um, I'm not surprised he, he was stationed there because it's always been sort of a strategic place. Even like there is a fort that was built in the 1700s. Um, it's Rygate sort of on the North down. So up on like a hill, if you will. Okay. And you have great views south to the South Downs or to London. So it was always a strategic place and always a sort of an army base there. So the high ground. Yeah. Most of Boyd's time in the military was spent putting his motorcycle riding skill to use as a dispatch rider, delivering sensitive messages and written orders between installations. In 1945, when the war was over, Boyd returned to Ontario to join his family who'd relocated there in 1944. 
Edwin obtained jobs as a window washer and later a streetcar driver to support his family. He quit the streetcar driving job in 1946, loathing the daily grind, and for the next three years had only odd jobs. Edwin was bored with workaday life and unable to stay in one place for any amount of time. He hated being told what to do and when to do it. The money wasn't great, and it didn't come fast enough for Edwin's liking. He began to think about ways to spice things up and earn some quick cash, dreaming of his time riding the rails with his buddies and taking what he wanted when he wanted it. It was a Bank of Montreal branch in North Toronto that caught his interest, and he started obsessing about robbing the place. He'd been inspired by the story of an unarmed, autistic youth who'd robbed a bank by walking in and demanding the teller give him cash. From the Torontoist.com, quote, If it's that easy, Boyd asked himself, what the hell am I working for? He grabbed a gun and downed so much liquid courage that he claims to have blacked out a few times during the holdup. In another version of the tale, Boyd covered his face with makeup and puffed out his cheeks with cotton for a disguise, and he was so cocksure of his infallibility that he returned to the scene of the crime a few days later. End quote. Yeah, that's right. He robbed the place again. Over the next two years, Boyd robbed banks, often alone and sometimes with an accomplice, eventually getting away with enough cash to buy his family a bungalow in Pickering. His neighbors there noticed he took a lot of pride in the landscaping of his property. They had no idea that a notorious bank robber was living nearby. On Tuesday, October 16, 1951, Edwin Boyd's first bank robbing spree came to a halt. The 37-year-old was arrested only an hour after he and his pal Howard Galt, 43, robbed a branch of the Dominion Bank on Young Street, making away with $12,800, enough to buy another house in those days. Galt, who'd been drunk during the robbery, was the first caught, and he fingered Edwin Alonzo Boyd as his accomplice, which then led to Boyd's arrest. The following list of charges comes from a CP article in the Sun-Times and Owen Sound. Quote, George Wilson, suburban North York sergeant of detectives, said today he had taken a signed statement from Boyd and that these charges were laid against him. 1. The $8,029 robbery of the Dominion Bank on Shepherd Ave in North York, September 1, 1951. 2. The $2,921 armed robbery of an Avenue Road branch of the Bank of Montreal, March 19, 1951. 3. The attempted armed robbery of an Imperial Bank of Canada branch, October 11, 1950, in which the bank manager opened fire on the gunman and beat him off. 4. The $2,018 armed robbery of Dufferin Street branch of the Dominion Bank on July 4, 1950. 5. The $2,500 armed robbery of a North Toronto branch of the Bank of Commerce, July 18, 1950. 6. The $2,256 armed robbery, September 9, 1949, of the Avenue Road branch of the Bank of Montreal that was robbed last March 19. And 7. A joint charge with Galt for the armed robbery of the Dominion Bank, Lawrence and Young Streets, yesterday. End quote. The article continued describing Edwin Alonzo Boyd's use of disguises to hide his identity while committing the offenses. Quote, Police said Boyd disguised himself to look like a monster before staging the bank robberies. They said he stuffed his nostrils with cotton, his cheeks with pieces of tissue paper, and used lipstick on his eyelids. Detectives said they found a complete makeup kit and pieces of cotton in Boyd's truck. They found false faces, mustaches, and masks in his home. End quote. Some papers started calling Boyd the false-faced bandit. 
Boyd was tossed into the infamous Dawn Jail, a.k.a. The Dawn, in downtown Toronto. According to the site LostRivers.ca, the old Dawn Jail opened in 1864 and closed in 1977. It was Toronto's fourth jail, replacing the one on the site of the old Parliament buildings at Front and Parliament. While in the years just before it was closed, it was considered an embarrassment to the Canadian criminal justice system, when opened, it was called the Palace for Prisoners. At the time, it represented a tremendous advance in the public attitude toward the treatment of lawbreakers. Until then, as was then the worldwide custom, prisoners had been confined in appalling and inhumane conditions, end quote. But it doesn't sound like it was a fun place to be incarcerated. Also from LostRivers.ca, quote, Prisoners were not allowed to talk without permission and received only monthly visits from friends and family. Violations frequently resulted in flogging. For about the first 100 years, inmates generally were not allowed to speak unless addressed first by a prison official. Prisoners spent 23 hours a day in the cell blocks, with the remaining hour in the outdoor exercises yard, now a parking lot. They had to keep moving in the yard and were not allowed to sit around and soak up the sun. The inmates did much of the maintenance, including painting, carpentry work, and other jail repairs. They also worked a jail farm that covered much of the present Riverdale Park. End quote. To Edwin Boyd, rules were meant to be broken. Soon after being tossed into the dawn, Boyd began secretly plotting his escape with another group of notorious bank robbers. And we'll take a break right here. So I'm supposing the name of the jail came from the Don River because you got so much information from the Lost Rivers website? Sure, sure. Yeah, so, so it's called the Don because there's a Don River in Toronto. There, and there's also the Don Valley. And... Yeah, of the of the river, right? <laughs> yeah, The exactly. valley of the river. Yeah. But I'm also, uh, there's a few things. I'm thinking about how easy it must have been to commit a crime in the 1950s and get away with it. Right. Like maybe knowing what we know now, like if we went back in time, mm -hmm. we'd be dangerous. Um, but I was also like, okay, the guy already owns a house. Great start in life. Yep. If he had just stopped there, like got a job. Yeah. He would have been set for the rest of his life. Sure. And, you know, he would have been a great financial position. I'm thinking that um, he seemed to crave excitement, though. That was the problem. I think you are, like, that's what I was just going to say is that it wasn't about obtaining the things. It was about the doing, the doing of the obtaining. <laughs> You know? Well, I mean, if he wants excitement, why did he move to Pickering? Right. <laughs> like he could have bought a house in Toronto. Isn't Pickering where the uh, nuclear power plant yeah. is? Yeah. Well, well, it is or used to be. It probably yeah. wasn't there then. But anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, he could have waited for that to happen. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Got a job at the nuclear factory. I'm also thinking about how we seem to sens sensationalize bank robbers as, right. as some sort of anti-heroes. We yep. talked about this a little bit mm -hmm. before, right? And I think it's kind of like, you know, all of us sort of think, yeah, it's robbing a bank is sticking it to the man, right? Yeah. Um, and public opinion can often be quite po like oddly positive for a bank robber. Yep. But only until one of us, I, air quoting here, gets hurt. It's like a customer, a security guard, a bank teller, sure. right? Because if if you're sticking it to the man and stealing, you know, the evil big bank's money, 
it's fine by by many people, but if you start hurting hurting uh, you know the the folks just working there, you're you're in trouble. Well, exactly, and you do hurt the folks working there by just robbing the bank because well, they're the traumatized. Ma- my mom worked at uh, Bank of Commerce for a while, mm-hmm. right? I can't imagine if yeah. Yeah, like that would mess somebody up being robbed yeah. and being told, I will kill you if you don't give me your money. Yeah, and uh, bank employees are trained just to give, hand the money over. Sure, it yeah. makes sense. It's interesting. I always, I was thinking about banks and mm. how hard it would be to rob a bank right now. Mm. Um, there's different security things in place, including surveillance cameras and all that kind of stuff. Some of the bank doors are meant to lock uh, or they have like a remote locking system, so they will lock to keep the robber in the bank, which I don't know mm, if, if is a good idea. If other people are in the bank, it's probably not yeah. a good idea. <laughs> but um, also, if you notice, here in Surrey at least, and I think downtown, um, banks tend to be closer to the police stations. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like uh, there's an RCMP station just up the road here, and a block away from that are the banks. Hmm. So it's like, oh, yeah, we'll put the banks here. <laughs> or maybe maybe we'll put the banks here and then the RCMP think, here's the perfect place for a satellite <laughs> station near the bank. The characters that Boyd connected with were a band of ne'er-do-wells. Leonard Jackson was a 29-year-old accused bank robber with an artificial lower left leg. He'd lost that during a failed attempt at hopping a train. He was awaiting trial. And William R. Willie Jackson, 25, was being held in the dawn after being sentenced for the beating and robbery of an older man. William had been sentenced to seven years and 20 lashes for that crime. It turns out that Lenny, knowing he was on his way to prison, had smuggled hacksaw blades inside his artificial leg. The group sawed through the bars of a window on the second-floor corridor And one evening, after dinner, when the guards were not watching, it didn't take long before the bars gave way. On November 5, 1951, the Kingston Whig Standard described the jailbreak. Quote, They squeezed through an opening nine and a quarter inches by 16 inches, slid down a bedsheet rope to the ground, then used another improvised rope to scale the exercise yard wall and reach the street. They were all described as dangerous. End quote. According to the Torontoist.com, quote, As an indication of their level of fame at the time, the reward offered was a meager $500 per head. They were supposed to have been picked up by Steve Suchan, born Valent Lesso, and one of the more violent members of Lenny Jackson's gang. But he'd been so occupied with entertaining his girlfriend that he'd forgotten, end quote. Interestingly, despite his penchant for violence, Steve Suchan was also a talented musician, able to play any instrument he put his mind to. He tried to make a living as a violinist for a time, but frustrated at the lack of money coming his way, he eventually traded his violin in for a pistol at a Toronto pawn shop. He eventually traded his violin in for a pistol at a Toronto pawn shop. Isn't that a perfect ads for funding a, ad for funding of the arts? What do you mean? <laughs> Fund the arts. Make musicians, not bank robbers. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Either that or like violin playing is a gateway drug to bank robbery. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. Like I, I think, wow, what drives a violinist to become a bank robber? <laughs> I'm a bank robber, but I'm really a musician. <laughs> Right? Yeah, musician is my my true passion. I just rob banks to keep myself, you know, above water. Yeah. The Torontoist article continues. 
Within two weeks, Willie Jackson was recaptured at a Montreal restaurant. The rest of the group, however, held up the Bank of Toronto on Dundas in late November 1951 to kick off a four-month streak of robberies netting a loot totaling over $75,000. They even staged what was then the largest bank robbery in Canadian history when they made off with $46,000 from the Royal Bank's Leaside branch. End quote. Willie the Clown Jackson was sentenced to two years in prison for his escape from custody, and that was tacked on to the seven years he'd already earned. Even though Lenny Jackson seemed to be the real brains of the operation, the press picked up on Edwin Boyd's charisma, good looks, and propensity for wearing a fedora during their daring robberies. This earned the group the moniker the Boyd Gang. Torontonians and Ontarians followed the gang's exploits closely in the newspapers. Every cop in the country was on the lookout for the brazen bank-robbing escapees. The Boyd gang were painted in some papers, at least, as folk heroes, but soon they'd be involved in the incident that soured the public's sentiments toward them. It was the murder of a beloved Toronto police sergeant, Edmund Eddie Tong. You know, we are suckers for good looks. Yeah. Remember that guy, Jeremy Meeks, I think he was arrested for illegal gun possession and gang crime and his mugshot went viral as as the prison bay? Yes, yeah. He was really handsome, right? And like literally two years later, he's on the cover of Fashion Mags and he's he's doing runway in New York Fashion Week. Right, yeah. As soon as you get somebody pretty... Mm-hmm. Did they become the lead in the story? It's so weird. Well, that's exactly what happened in this case. Because like, he I mean, wasn't even the mastermind. He's just one of the guys, but because he was the handsome one. No, he looked like Errol Flynn. <laughs> if you look up a picture of uh, Edwin Alonzo Boyd when he was young, he really did look like Errol Flynn. Like there was, It's not an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was his long-lost brother. Well, I don't know. Errol Flynn was kind of an interesting character himself and died here in Vancouver. Yeah, mm-hmm. so interesting. You just look up Errol Flynn and this guy and you'll see. Okay. According to Edward Butts in his book, Line of Fire, Heroism, Tragedy, and Canada's Police, Edmund Tong was 21 years old when he emigrated to Canada in 1926 from Leeds, England. He joined the Toronto Police Department in 1929 and began working his way up the ranks, becoming a respected member of the force. According to Butts, quote, Fellow officers who had worked with Tong said they never saw him pull his gun, but that he was more than capable of handling himself in a rough situation. The punks of the Toronto underworld knew better than to mess with him. End quote. I edited out a racist nickname in the last quote that Eddie had given to him for his, quote, unusual name and jet black hair. There's no honor among thieves. In the days before Tong's death, Edwin Boyd had knocked over a bank on his own without Lenny Jackson and Steve Suchan, keeping all the loot for himself. The other two were angry at Boyd and decided that the best way to get back at Edwin was to pull a bank job without him. They borrowed a car, a black monarch that belonged to a friend, and went out for a drive to determine their next target. What Jackson and Suchan didn't know was that the cops were already on the lookout for that specific vehicle, as informants had told them that it had been used in previous crimes. On the afternoon of March 6, 1952, Roy Perry was driving the police cruiser. Eddie Tong was in the passenger seat when they spotted the Monarch on the streets of Toronto and began following it. The officers pulled up beside the car and Tong told the driver of the Monarch to pull over, which he did. While Perry waited behind the wheel, Tong got out of the car and approached the Monarch on the driver's side. He did not draw his gun. 
the officers had no idea who might be in the suspect vehicle at this point. Tong was just over a meter from the monarch when Perry says he saw his partner turn quickly to the right. Edward Butts surmised in his book, Line of Fire, that it was then that Tong saw the gun in Steve Suchan's hand. Before Tong could react any further, Suchan, the driver of the Monarch, opened fire with his 45 caliber Smith & Wesson pistol. Tong dropped to the pavement, shot through the chest. Suchan then turned his attention to the police car, firing on Perry, who was struck in the arm while instinctually raising it to protect his head from the gunfire, presumably saving his own life. There are conflicting accounts as to whether Lenny Jackson fired his gun at all, but he later admitted to having pulled it out after jumping out of the car. Suchan hollered for Jackson to get back into the Monarch, and as the car sped off, Perry managed to radio for help before passing out. Tong and Perry, both hospitalized after the shooting, were able to identify Suchan and Jackson as the occupants of the vehicle and the alleged shooters. Although Perry was recovering, the outlook for Tong was grim. He had been shot through the left side of the chest, and the bullet had gone through both lungs. He was too unstable for an operation at first, and the doctors were concerned he was not going to make it. Suchan was tracked to Montreal and captured only a day after the shooting. Four cops waited for him in his Cote d'Ange apartment and ambushed him when he arrived. One of the officers, Sergeant Detective Albert Dauphin, fired his gun three times at the surprised Suchan after he drew his pistol on the waiting officers. From a Kingston Whig Standard article as told to the Canadian press by Detective Sergeant George Cote, quote, Dauphin fired three shots. The first one hit the 24-year-old Suchan in the arm. Another got him in the stomach and he fell to the floor, twisting and grimacing. From the floor he tried to hold up his gun, but he couldn't, and the big weapon clattered to the floor. I moved over to him as he lay there to turn him on his back, and Dauphin kicked the fallen gun away. Suchan looked up at me and said, You guys are poor shooters. Why don't you finish me? By this time we were waiting for the ambulance, and he was still lying on the living room floor. Then he said, Give me one in the head. Nobody will know the difference. That was when I told him we were more interested in taking him alive. We found that he had two forty-five pistols in a German Mauser. End quote. A few days later in Montreal, local and Toronto cops knocked on the door of the apartment where Lenny Jackson was holed up with his new wife. Lenny opened the door a crack, and on seeing the grim faces of the officers on the other side, he yanked the door open quickly, raised his pistol, and fired. He narrowly missed Toronto Detective John Gillespie's face. Jackson tried to slam the door shut, but Gillespie, who dropped to avoid being shot, kicked at the door where he lay, trying to get a clear shot at the cop shooter. There was a brief gun battle as fire was exchanged, but it was Jackson who went down, gut shot. Gillespie told the Montreal Gazette about an interaction that he had with Lenny Jackson in the hours after he apprehended him. Quote, he told me later at the hospital, I'm sure glad, John, I didn't get you at that doorway. And I looked right back at him and said, not as half as glad as I am. He made a few other remarks about me hanging around Montreal, and I told him, after all, I didn't come here for nothing. He grinned and replied, I saw your big fat face plastered all over the newspapers. End quote. Jackson and Suchan were brought back to Toronto, charged with the many bank robberies, involvement in the jailbreak, and the shooting of Tong and Perry. Steve Suchan's father, Joseph Lasso, was also arrested and charged for harboring his son, Lenny Jackson, and Edwin Boyd after warrants had been issued for their arrest when it was clear they were responsible for the rash of bank robberies. Edwin Alonzo Boyd was caught by police on March 21, 1952, after a tipster recognized him and pointed authorities to an apartment he'd rented to hide out. 
cops entered the apartment in the middle of the night, so Boyd was asleep when they discovered him. He woke to the barrels of police firearms in his face. Edwin was arrested and charged for his crime spree. Norman, Edwin's brother, and Edwin's wife Doreen, also present in the apartment, were arrested and charged with harboring a criminal. Cops searched the apartment and found that Edwin had stashed $23,000 there, as well as a cache of weapons which were, according to Nate Hendley's book, two 38 caliber revolvers, a 7.45mm Beretta automatic pistol, a 9mm Luger, and a .455 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. They also found commando-style knife and ammunition. Cops were happy they found their man asleep. The weapons were loaded and all within easy reach of where Boyd lay sleeping. A few days later, things took a turn for Eddie Tong. The worst happened. At 12.05 a.m. on the morning of March 24, 1952, the tough 48-year-old Toronto detective succumbed to his wounds, killed by a massive blood clot. Sue Chan and Jackson's charges were immediately upgraded to capital murder. The only punishment for that crime at the time, where one found guilty, was to hang. After they were released from hospital, Steve Suchan and Lenny Jackson were brought back to the Don Jail, where all four of the former gang members were put into cells adjacent to one another. The cells were bugged and the gang knew it. The move turned out to be not the smartest bit of thinking on the part of police and jail officials as the gang began planning another escape, using hand signals and secret notes to communicate. They were also able to make their own key to the cells. From the book Fatal Intentions by Barbara Smith, Quote, Ever the jokester, Willie Jackson soon made friends with one of the guards assigned to their high-security corridor. As the guard led the four prisoners back to their cells after an exercise period, Willie grabbed the custodian's key and asked to be allowed to lock his friends in for the evening. The jailer, of course, denied Willie's request and demanded the key back. Willie obliged, assuring the guard he'd only been joking. The guard knew and enjoyed Willie's hijinks, so the incident didn't cause the degree of concern that it certainly should have. For the few seconds that Willie held the key, he'd been squeezing it as tightly as he could in the palm of his hand. Once safely locked in his cell for the night, he used a jail-issue pencil to trace the outline imprinted in his hand. End quote. A visitor then smuggled in a file and a soft piece of metal, giving it to Willie during a visit. Later, a hacksaw blade was also smuggled in. The gang set to work, one group member filing on the bars, another filing a key from Willie's template while the others made lots of noise, singing and banging and flushing toilets to mask the sound of the escape work. That's such a smart way of, of escaping, holding onto a key and getting the imprint on your hand and then drawing. I don't know if that would be possible now, especially with electronic door well, locks. Well, back then it probably would have been a skeleton key, right? Oh, totally, yeah. And skeleton keys, when I was about 10, mm -hmm. a friend and I found his dad had this old set of skeleton keys. Right. So what did we do? Took them. We went downtown oh, no. to the old buildings and just tried them, and we ended up unlocking. What did we unlock? And we just run as soon as it unlocked. We un we unlocked the old the um the old post office that has the tower. Okay, and we un unlocked a donut store. <laughs> well, I know what what would have happened had I been <laughs> there were able no to... donuts in it. Oh, shit. We did go into that one. There were no donuts. <laughs> we figured nobody would miss a donut. Nobody would miss a donut. <laughs> It, it would be like just all all you see is just powder everywhere and no donuts. There's crumbs and powder. <laughs> two kids asleep in the corner. Yeah, just crashed out. Hold, with their holding their skeleton keys. <laughs> exactly. How did they get all? Oh. <laughs> I guess we should change the locks. 
Yeah, those were the days. They did actually, it's weird. They still used skeleton te- They still used skeleton keys when we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how well, insecure is that? Well, when I lived in, in Moscow, I had, they were like double ones though. Like there was like, the, imagine a skeleton's key, but top and bottom. Yep. And you'd put in my, my, kind, my yeah. apartment door and you'd be, do this big clunk. They were like, they weighed about, these old Soviet keys, they weighed about five pounds each. In, in Soviet Russia, yes. he uses Yule. <laughs> On September 8, 1952, the day before Lenny and Steve's murder trials were set to begin, the group used their jail-made key, removed the bars they had so carefully sawn, and once again squeezed out through scaled the wall, and were on the run again. A $26,000 reward was offered for their recapture this time, and the warden of the prison was suspended. This time the gang weren't as careful, and their recapture came only 10 days later. Willie Jackson had been spotted when he went to Young Street in Shepherd in North York to buy food and cigarettes. He was followed, and the gang were discovered hiding in a barn just a mile north of Shepherd Avenue and Leslie Street from CBC Archives. Jackson and Su Chen were tried at Toronto's Old City Hall and found guilty of murder. Both were sentenced to death. They were to be hanged at 8 a.m. on December 16, 1952. But to their surprise, the hangmen arrived at midnight, and they were hanged simultaneously, their backs together at 12.14 a.m. Lenny Jackson went to the gallows without his artificial leg. He was forced to hop to the noose. John J. Robinette, Su Chen's lawyer, had won 16 high-profile capital cases, including the appeal and acquittal of torso murderer defendant Evelyn Dick. He left criminal law after the Su Chen trial to become Canada's best-known counsel, appearing frequently before the Supreme Court of Canada in several leading constitutional and civil cases. End quote. For his part in all the robberies, Edwin Boyd received eight life sentences, and Willie Jackson got 30 years for his part in things. Both were released on parole in 1962 after serving 10 years in Kingston Pen for bank robbery. Because of parole violations, Boyd was returned to prison for four more years and was released again in 1966. He retired to private life under a new identity, now calling himself John. He landed in Victoria, British Columbia, driving a bus for disabled people, eventually divorcing Doreen and marrying one of his regular passengers who he'd fallen for. They both retired to an old folks' home after more than 35 years of marriage. According to the Fifth Estate, two months prior to his death, Boyd told a CBC producer that he had once killed a couple and left their bodies in the trunk of a car in High Park, Toronto, years before his notoriety as a bank robber. The crime fits the September 11, 1947 murders of Ira Scott and George Vigas. Before a formal investigation into his confession began on May 17, 2002, Edwin Alonzo Boyd died. He was 88 years old. In 1998, CBC produced a documentary about Boyd's life, and in 2011, Canadian actor Scott Speedman played Boyd in the film Edwin Boyd, Citizen Gangster. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 207, Bad Apples, Edwin Alonzo Boyd and his gang. I guess it wasn't really his gang, which is kind of interesting, even though he, he, he lived the part being, you know, yeah. it later on in life, uh, took responsibility for a couple of murders, which that was really fascinating. I didn't really dig into that very far, but I thought... wonder why he did that. It guilt, well, guilty conscience at the end probably, of his life? Probably. He probably Maybe knew he that... Maybe found Jesus or something. I don't know. I mean, he probably knew that he was at the end of his days and 
wanted to clear his conscience before he went to meet quote unquote his maker. But that uh, it's so it's so not in his mo though, right? Right. Like m- murdering a couple in a car or whatever happened versus just robbing banks. Mm-hmm. Totally different. Well. Ma- Maybe he didn't do it, or maybe he did do it and just missed the attention that he got from people. Uh, yeah, you know. So I don't know. It's a it's a really strange one, but I have a funny feeling that he was telling the truth. Probably. Why? Yeah. Why would you make something up like that at the end of your life? Well, I don't know. Unless you want to leave a legacy behind, maybe maybe you like, maybe you're such a sociopath that you like to leave people questioning after you're gone it's like you want to leave a legacy of excitement and stuff like that but you wouldn't know well maybe he knew who maybe he really did know who did it okay because he hung with some pretty violent characters like that steve suchan like he's willing to shoot cops oh that's sad you know and and jackson was also willing to take pot shots at the cops when they were arresting him like and then, then he's like oh i'm glad i missed you yeah, right? I'm glad I missed you, but so weird. Yeah, and the cops like, yeah, I'm glad too. <laughs> oh, man. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1877-327-5786 or 1877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Here's our first voicemail. Hey guys, um, I'm discovered your podcast through looking uh, looking up an old story from my hometown, um, the triple murder in Kitimat uh, by Kevin Vermet. Allegedly, um, I was a kid when that happened, and it was definitely wild. Um, it's not a common commonly covered story uh, in in true crime pro- podcasts and YouTubers. Um, So thank you for um, highlighting that uh, huge tragedy in a small town. Um, But um, would you be shocked to hear that it's not the only time um, Kinemat has uh, lost its youth um, in horrible tragedies? Um, A friend of mine, a girl I knew in high school, um, Amandeep Atwal was uh, murdered in an honor killing. Um, and that whole story is very, very sad. Um, would love to hear um, that be covered by you folks as well. Um, I'm definitely subscribing to this. Um, but I, I do believe her story would be a fantastic one to tell um, and just to keep her name out there. Um, well, thank you guys for your time. Um, I'm not going to tell you to shit in a hat because I don't know what that means. Um, But thank you. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for your voicemail, for the compliments. And it's an interesting case, that one that you're speaking of. And and honor killings uh, are horrific. It's a horrific, awful thing. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I find them so terrible. I just... I just, I don't know if I want to cover one because it's so, it's such a tragic thing. We will someday. We will someday, but um, yeah, it's really ugly. Yes, it yeah. is. Anyway, 
Thank you. Thank you. So, so much. Uh, let's listen to another one. This is the second one. Look at that. We have two. Hey, you guys. I'm wondering what's going on up there in Canada. You guys are, you, something's not right up there. You guys are really screwed up. You know what? Why don't y'all just be nice to each other, for goodness sake? I've had enough. You guys are, you suck. You guys really, really suck up there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, everybody's being mean. It's awful. You know, you, uh, you catch more flies with honey. Just give each other a hug. Bye. Okay. Yeah, some people have called in or emailed the show about a joke that Matthew made about grr, grr, arg. Uh, about 5G penises and the uh, and the Wi-Fi. It was a joke. Grr, yeah. arg. But yeah, anyway, a lot of people are having a rough time right now and we really, really, really feel for everybody who is hurting because there's a lot of people who are tired and frustrated and angry and all of those things. So, yes, we love you all. I maneuver life through humor. That's what I do, Mike. Right. So. Somet- sometimes. And th- we do love you all. And, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't, cri- I don't really criticize no. anybody at all. No, in our hearts, we don't. No, we don't. Really. Because, no. You, you know, if you sat, if we sat down, that's the thing about everyone. If you just sat down across the table, just one-on-one and broke bread together, you just talk about stuff. It's all good. Well, yeah. I don't know. It it just there's so much mud mud slinging right now. Yeah. I just I don't know. I'm just scared. I'm just I feel I feel sad. Why do you feel sad? I'm just watching people fight. Yeah. I don't like it. And then people coming at us for something that was said in jest is just like okay, whatever. But you know. Well, I think, you know, in the long run, we'll just have people that understand jokes listening to the show. <laughs> people, yeah, people with a sense, if you have a sense of humor. This is the show for you. Parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you like true crime and you have a sense of humor and yeah. you care about victims, this is the podcast. Yeah, for exactly. But if you don't have a sense of humor, don't listen. <laughs> That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. It's time for Patreon. It looks like we got a little love this week, so thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, pre-thank you to those who uh, stepped up to help the show. First up, we have Cynthia, and she's from Souk, British Columbia. I like Souk. Have you ever been? Mm, I don't know. Probably not. If you, if you... <laughs> but anyway, yes. Would I have driven through it on the way somewhere? No, probably not. Okay. But um, Cynthia, what does she do there in Souk, British Columbia? She, Matthew. She has a taco shop. A taco shop in Souk. Yep. What kind of tacos does she sell? Uh, her specialization is seafood tacos. Oh, fish tacos. Yeah. Is souk on the water? Kind of. So there you go. Yeah, look at that. Souk fish tacos. Souk fish tacos. Souk is actually at the very bottom end of uh, Vancouver Island. And yeah, it's on the water. And it's just east of Victoria. Oh, and there's somewhere... 
Somewhere called Shirley next to it as well. Shirley. Don't call me Shirley. Don't call me Shirley. I'm from Souk. Don't say it's Shirley. <laughs> oh, boy, that was a really... You sucked. That was really, really bad. <laughs> next, we have Stephanie Savoie. And I don't know where Stephanie is from. Mystic Beach. Mystic. Where's Mystic Beach? Just up the water from Souk. Oh, well, look at that. <laughs> well, thank you, it, Stephanie. It sounds sort of like a cool place. Mystic Myst Beach. Mystic Beach. You go there and you have a spiritual experience. Yes. You are able to float off into the ether and yeah. perhaps... And uh, she does she does tarot card readings. Oh, tarot card Beach. readings. Yeah. There is a lot of that kind of stuff on Vancouver Island, you know, the, the hippy-dippies. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was... Uh, a very rude person once said, uh, if you tip Canada, somebody, somebody tipped Canada onto its side and all the nuts rolled to the West Coast. Oh, nice. Yeah. So. Guess that includes us. It does include us. So thank you, Stephanie Savoie. Next, we have from Independence, Kansas, Brianne Sanford. I don't know how many other people from Kansas we have on Patreon, but... Thank you, Brianne. I'm, I'm glad your name wasn't Dorothy or we would have made a bunch of jokes about that. But uh, Independence, Kansas. What does Brianne Sanford do there in Independence, Kansas? She raises the flag every morning in the town hall. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a very complicated job. Does she get paid a lot for that? Well, she does it with pride. <laughs> okay. Cause she's from Independence. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, they're, they're fair enough. Someone's got to do it. And it's a very tall flagpole. By the time she gets it up at, in the morning, start of the afternoon, it's time to go home. She has to take it down. You said by the time she gets it up. Yeah. Oh. The flag. Oh, I, I, when I hear somebody getting it up, I think of oh, something such different. A pig. And then it gets up there and like hours have gone by and she has to bring it down. Oh, well. Next we have J. Ray V., well, that's an interesting name. It's like J-R-A-E-V. Yeah. Hmm. J-Ray-V. So J-Ray-V, I don't know where J-Ray-V is from. Alpha Centauri. Uh, Alpha Centauri. From the Avatar, I assume J-Ray is female. So Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri. Maybe they don't have binary. Closest maybe livable planet. There, I think, was that this week that you read that? No. There were other things that There's, I read about something. They always say, hey, we can reach it. It's like 10 light years. <laughs> yeah, no, there was something within four light years that I read this week. Do you, do you know how f <laughs> even four light years is? Well, it's a long way. Yeah, like we'll never get there. Long way. No, but I, I think we could make a spacecraft go fast enough that we could get there in... 25 to 30 years. No. Yeah. In four light years, you can make a spacecraft to go there in 25, 30 years. Yeah. You're not very good at math, are you? No. That's why I do this show. <laughs> so thank you, J. Ray V. Uh, what does she do there in Alpha Centauri? Oh, she doesn't do it there. She's from there. She's here. Oh, well, how did she get here? If, okay, smarty pants. So she had to travel here. So how, how did that happen? Because they have, obviously, Mike, much better technology than us. Intergalactic space travel? Yes. No. Did they have a TARDIS? No, but she did you know, the whole wormhole thing, right? Oh, okay. And she's here just studying. 
What is she studying? Us? Like humans. <laughs> yeah, it it's so me. far she's greatly disappointed. I'm wondering if we take taste good, I think. <laughs> Next up we have Dara Lynch, and I don't know where Dara is from, but it it seems like Dara is a uh patron in Euros, which is interesting. A patron in Euros. Mm-hmm. So not sure where Dara is from. I think Dar is from Ireland. Ireland, oh, okay. The Republic of Republic of Ireland. I would love to travel to Ireland one day. I, I've always had this urge to go there. Do it. Yeah. The the Brown family name. There's a lot of Browns with an E in Cork. Father Brown. Father Brown. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't have an E on the end. But no. Yeah. Um. What does Dara do there in Ireland? What does she do in Ireland? Mm-hmm. She works for Guinness. Oh, Guinness. Yeah, she runs the museum. <laughs> oh, wow. There's a Guinness museum? Of course there's a Guinness museum. Is there people laying around outside, <laughs> drunk off their faces? <laughs> I, I assume that that's the case. Drinking Guinness is like having a loaf of bread. How so? It's just so thick and heavy. Oh, is there a lot of yeast in it? Is yeah, that it's, yeah. Like, it's, it's like... A, you practically have to chew it. Ew. Yeah, I don't know if I like that very much. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. So uh, that's it for patrons. We did have somebody who... Uh, thank you, patrons. Thank you so much. We did have somebody who gave us some donut money this week. Who? And her name is Haley M. Wells, and she said, really enjoyed the latest episode, Nanaimo Girl Gone. Thank you. Well, thank you for becoming a patron, where do you think Haley is from? She's from Belarus. Be- oh, wow. I, I thought you were going to say Nanaimo because I just said Nanaimo. No, Vitipsk. Vitipsk in Belarus. Belarus is... Uh... I think that's where Mark Chagall was born. Oh, really? I, I, I don't know a lot about Eastern Europe. I don't know why, but that sort of has escaped my attention mm. throughout my life. Like I recall things, uh, some history happening, happening there over the years. Some history happened. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like, uh, <laughs> the whole, uh, Soviet Union and all that kind of stuff. But I never really got into, uh, Eastern European history. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't mean to diss it, mm. but, um, maybe it's something that I need to learn more about. I'm, I've been fascinated with Soviet culture lately because I was watching the TV show, The Americans. I watched it right to the, from beginning to end, I binged it. It's a good show about, you know, two Soviet spies who Mm. are living as a family with their two American born kids in the United States. It's a pretty fascinating show. The only reason why I know VTips Belarus is I had a boyfriend from there. Oh. And we went to visit his mom. You went to visit his mom. In Vitipsk. It is Vitipsk a nice place? Like, is it a... No. no. It, it wasn't a nice place. There were, like, potholes in the roads the size of oh. lotas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was... The it, infrastructure wasn't good. Yeah, and Belarus, you know, essentially the guy's a dictator and a puppet of Putin. Ah, so, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. But I, I'd like to visit that part of the world at some point. Not right right now probably isn't the best idea because things no. things are a little tense. 
If you ever want to go to Moscow or St. Pete's, just tell me. I still have tons of friends. Okay. Yeah, I really want to see Moscow. Like, I love the architecture of the Kremlin and, and yeah. different different places. It's it's a fascinating-looking place. Yeah. So St. Petersburg is uh, more beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, is considered, and the, the Russian, did I tell you this the other day? The Russian accent, the St. Petersburg accent is considered high Russian, right? High Russian. Yeah, like um, like the the proper Russian accent is from St. St. Petersburg. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So what does Haley do there in Belarus? Um, she just hangs. She just hangs out? Yeah. Well, well, well that's her, that's her. how does she earn the money to send us donut money well, then? Well, that's her cover, right? Oh. She works for Ceases. Ixnay on the iSpay. Ixnay on the Ceases. <laughs> right. Ceases is hiring right now, big time. They would never hire me. No, me neither. <laughs> like, I looked I looked at can it. I, can that, so for people who don't know it, that's like the Canadian Secret Service. Right? Yeah, the Canadian. Uh, Secret Intelligence Services, Ceases. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah I, I, I used to have fast, like sort of an obsession with maybe becoming a spy one day. But then I realized through all the reading that I've done, it could be pretty boring. Yeah. All you do is sit and watch one person all day long. And you have to be super smart to get in. Uh, I don't know if that's the case anymore as far as uh, the um, surveillance part goes. Okay. But, but yeah, you have to be super smart to get into certain roles there for sure. I, so. I wouldn't pass the psyche evaluation. The psyche evaluation? No, I don't think I would either. They would go, oh, let's let's look at, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Yeah, I think a lot of these organizations won't take you if you've ever taken antidepressants or psychedelics or any of that kind of stuff. I think they will not take you. They're lost. They're lost. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm on antidepressants and psychedelics, and I'm here for my interview. Wow, look at you. You've grown horns. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much to our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present. You really do help to keep the show going. Oh, I need to do a call out. Okay, let's let's do a shout Karen. out. Karen. Karen from Switzerland. Okay. And Wendy, I think her name was Wendy. So they stopped and we ended up having, they stopped because I was walking Steve. Okay. And they had a cool little dog. Yep. Name Edith. And we just, Edith. yeah, very cute dog. And we just hung out and chatted. So I'm just saying hi to them. Well, there you go. Yeah. Because, uh, uh they talked, eventually the podcast came up in there and Karen was like, oh, you're Dark Poutine. Oh, they actually knew. She listens. So I'm calling <gasps> out. Yeah. Wow. I'm always blown away when somebody says, oh, I know you. Yeah. Like, no, you don't. Well, when people say, oh, you're Dark Poutine. I'm like, no, Mike's Dark Poutine. Nah. I'm just a sidekick. Yeah, well, you are the dark poutine sidekick then. Yeah, da, 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 da. Nah, you're an important part of the show, Matthew. Come on. Da, 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 da. What shirt are you wearing? I am wearing my Bat Boy shirt from okay. the Weekly World News. My grandmother used to read that crappy tabloid, and I don't know why she would read that, but she loved it. So, uh, yeah, Bat Boy, that's where I was first introduced. I read it just because... I think the majority of people read it just think it's stupid fun. That's why they read it. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's like, why I'm she I'm sure read she it. wasn't going, ooh, there's a real bad boy. She's just like, this is ridiculous, but it's funny, so I'm going to buy yeah. it. Yeah. She was a pretty fun person. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, Vera. Vera Kathleen. Vera. She, yeah. What a great grandmother name. Vera, Vera, Vera. 
Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you haven't already gotten yours yet, please order my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. It's available via an order link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please give Dark Poutine... uh, Please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. We would appreciate that. Join us in the Umber Yard. It's grown again. Uh, that's we, our Facebook group. Do we still have a website? We still have a website, darkpoutine.com. I've never been on it. Is there a picture of me? There is no picture of you. No. Oh. No. Do you want a picture? There's no picture of me. Should there be? <laughs> no, but there should be one of me. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. They can come to the Yard and see pictures of you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So if you want to see a picture of Matthew. <laughs> go to the Yard. Go to the Yumberyard. Matthew is quite active in the Yard. I know. It's my only social outlet. Posting memes and stuff. Well, that's because you work too much. I know. Like, literally, my life is this show, Walking Steve, work, and the Yard. Well, you, Justin, mm-hmm. don't forget your husband. Yeah, he's always there. Yeah, but don't take him for granted. <laughs> I don't. Justin's lovely. I really find your husband to be a lovely man. He's a great guy. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's it for this week's show. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Go put in your hood. Go put in your hood. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>